Dithda Hadina Pabuni, the Bocasto Mescla Brion Druth, Ustiz Genev Sove Berryman. Hello and welcome everyone to the Mescla Brion Druth podcasts, hosted by me, Sove Berryman. Mescla Brion Druth is a multi platform project using sculpture making and conversation to explore contemporary Cornish cultural identity. Through workshops, podcasts, a symposium and an exhibition, the project invites people to share their experiences of identity and Cornwall and their views on Cornish culture and its relationship to land, language, heritage, tourism, the Cornish diaspora and much, much more. These podcasts record conversations with guests whose research or lived experience touches on the project themes. The views, thoughts and opinions expressed are the speaker's own. All conversations are carried out with a spirit of generosity and openness, creating space for the discussions to twist and turn. And I'm very grateful to all who have taken part. In this sixth podcast, I'm joined by Dave Beach, an artist and writer from a working class background. He is reader in Art and Marxism at University of the Arts London, and he is author of the books Art and Labour, Art and Post-Capitalism and Art and Value. Beach worked in the collective Free with Andy Hewitt and Mel Jordan between 2004 and 2018 and has recently had solo exhibitions at UNE Gallery New Orleans, Loft 8 Gallery Vienna and Exeter Phoenix, Devon. We join the conversation with Dave introducing his art and writing practices. Okay, so there, there are two things that I'm working on at the moment um which might be um related so one is i'm writing a book called art and class and this is um so as part of my uh thinking around this i've been kind of looking at the way that the working class has been uh represented culturally both in in artworks but also in in the literature on um uh, on culture and one of the so one of the things that might come out of that in, in our discussion is the relationship between the, the urban working class and the rural working class uh, and of different kinds of um, relations to modernity and um, and relations to technology and, and so on um, and fantasies around the working class and the fantasies around work and fantasies around different kinds of organization of of work you know so 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 that's one thing that comes through that study of uh, of the literature um and the other thing is that i'm i'm an artist and i'm i make um photo based artworks without a camera because i use books so my the the you know the the, the my process isn't to take a camera out onto the streets and photograph things. My process is to go to second-hand bookshops and buy books with photos in them that have travelled to me from all over the world. And as as you might imagine, you know, quite a lot of photographs 
are photographs of people doing things um, that you find in these books. And I'm kind of I'm really interested in 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 this this sort of you know very strange what what you end up with is a very strange collection of images of different people doing things, uh, which I've you know stacked up in my studio, uh, kind of images of people um, on various in various places around the world, you know, maybe looking at the camera or or looking at some at some object that they've made or that they're selling or something like that. And and I'm really interested in, in these um, um, encounters that are then being in a sense kind of um, transported to me. So you, so so in a sense you've got in the history of photography, what you have generally is photographers leaving their house to go somewhere else to take a photograph of something. But in my case, what I do is I stay put and allow these photographs to come to me uh, from all over the world. And then I rearrange them into montages that kind of tell stories about relations between people in different places. Um, so, so those, the things that I kind of pick up by by looking at the whole history of photography then kind of feed into my understanding of what it is that I'm looking at when I'm looking at things in the world because because in a sense the world ends up looking like a lot of photographs because this is this is what I'm looking at on a day-to-day -day basis is like well you know why do they photograph African people this way and European people that way and then you kind of get this sense of like, ah, okay, so they relate to their environment in different ways, supposedly. So, so then you can kind of, you see that replicated in the way that people represent themselves. So I can kind of then deconstruct my experience of the world via my kind of understanding of how photography has shaped how we look at people. Is this um, process akin to your writing process? Yeah. When I write, and I've been told this by other writers in, uh, that have uh, given me feedback on my writing at certain stages in, my, in writing the books, is I quote too much. Why can't you just summarise what people say? And I'm like, well, I want to use their words because the way that they phrase things is part of the investigation. And, and that carries information. You know, so the way that people talk about things carries information, not just what they said. So if I summarise it, then I'm losing information. And so quoting and, and in a sense building a book out of quotes is, is part of my writing practice. And then building images out of other people's images is part of my artistic practice. Um, and, I, and, you know, when I wrote Art and Value, the initial idea for that was to go through the entire history of economics and just identify the points at which economists have mentioned art and just cut out those quotes and then contextualise them. And effectively, that's what I do with the history of photography as well. Yeah. So within both those practices, um, there is a very analogue or manual sort of way of working. And um, this is something we've spoken about before and I kind of mentioned to you before we started speaking today around a notion of hands working and is that connected in your research or view to certain identities or cultures or 
Um, yeah, would you expand upon that a little for me, please? As soon as we start to talk about hands, I, I kind of like, I have all that, I've got, there's all these red flags around it. So whilst I have a very particular interest and commitment to working with my hands, you know, sometimes working my, with my hands just looks like this, you know, I'm using my hands to flick through the book. And it's like, that's, that's me doing something manual as opposed to maybe doing a Google image search for something. You know, so it's like, I'm, I, so there's this physical thing in my room, which is me with a book, and that's, that's got a kind of charge for me. It relates me to the world in a particular way, which doing a Google search doesn't, or, or rather the Google search relates to the world in a different way. And so whilst I, I'm really, uh, there's a commitment for me to working with physical books um, but I I'm really worried that when I if I if I if I just say that in a very casual way that it could be read as me having a very romantic attitude towards the handmade or something like that or or, or maybe even worse than a romantic attitude to the handmaid with a commitment to the handmaid as a form of luxury or something like that so so the hand is important in some respects but I've always got to be very careful not to allow that to be conflated with other conceptions of the hand yeah and there's so much around that for instance in like well, this is my interpretation of it, like thinking around now farmers markets and such like and wanting vegetables with mud on them or, um, you know, it's even in, you know, my lifetime, which is sort of med medium long and short, has, um, it was just normal to have markets that sold vegetables and then they sort of disappeared and then they came back, but sort of at escalated prices and selling something more than just carrots there's some there's totally lifestyle purchasing going on there um is it fetishized i, I think that that the hand itself has become a kind of fetish so um you know the, the this idea of of, of being hands-on or, or of doing something with your hands as a way of, in a sense, reconnecting yourself with a world that you don't belong to. So, you know, going to the farmer's market yourself and being face, what you want when you go to the farmer's market is to be face to face with a farmer. You know, so you don't want, you don't want to send an intermediary to do the shopping for you and you don't want the farmer to send an intermediary to do the selling for them. You want in a sense, to shake the hand of the farmer, even if that shake is really just you handing over money and them taking the money and giving you some vegetables. That, uh, that contact, which is, which is really signified by the idea of a handshake or the idea of a kind of, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an exchange of money in one hand and, and product in the other, 
um, is a kind of fetish for a certain kind of um, like a corrective to a problem in the world, a corrective to a problem in in your life, a sense that maybe you know in in the, in the midnight in, in the mid twentieth century you would you would use the language of alienation. You'd say you feel alienated from the land, you feel alienated from uh, other from the poor, you feel alienated from um, nature, and so on and so forth. And so what you do is you you um, you cure that alienation by I don't know befriending the community of farmers or something like that, and and so you 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 recognise this loss of connection and then you create a different kind of connection. You don't actually become a farmer or work with farmers or live with farmers. You create a different kind of connection, which you then can imagine solves the problem that you otherwise feel perhaps the fetish in that is around honesty or a notion of honesty or a notion of the authentic and authentic connection that is actually a performance yeah so in my um in my marxist way of thinking about it what you have is as is, is a is a problem that's a social relation and you cure it with an activity so so that's where the fetish comes in you think that you can um you can i don't know you can retain all of your privileges and you you can retain all your luxuries but they can all be compensated by a gesture um and so um you can do that gesture like with the I want to go to the farmer's market and I support farmers and you know you can have this kind of ethics of going to a farmer's market rather than a supermarket or something like that uh, and so you've got this kind of gestural um, solution to an ingrained structural historical social problem um, but every time you go to the farmer's market you're doing your bit you know so there's this kind of gestural aspect to it but you can also do this in relation to yourself so so you can do it in relation to farmers or, or to workers in some way but you can also do it in relation to yourself and you can say um, you know I work in an office or I uh, don't work at all or you know I have this luxurious lifestyle but I compensate for this because I also, I don't know, um, uh, I, I work one day a week for the food bank, you know, um, or I, um, I have, um, I grow my own vegetables, you know, so I'm not completely sort of cut off from the land and cut off from that kind of, uh, that life of need and, 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 and nature and so on. And, and, and there's, there's, so, so there's, there's a, a kind of self-gesturing where you, you have this one little aspect of your life which you, which, you, um, which you do as a way of compensating for everything else in your life. So one, one of the ways that this is done in the art world, for instance, is you have this uh, 
performative relationship to cooking together. So you say, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to have we're going to have this 12 month project with artists and this local community. And what we're going to do is we're going to start by cooking together and eating together. Uh, and this is going to be our way of, um, you know, not being intellectuals, not being not. There's no difference between an artist and a, and a and a and an audience member if what you're doing is chopping onions. And so you have this this kind of this idea that praxis can solve social relations because at the moment when you're practicing something those social relations become invisible uh, but their being invisible doesn't actually make them uh, no longer existent so so that's what I mean by when I say that it's gestural is that we can put it to one side for the time being so it's a formal equality that we're all cutting onions in the same way um, when in fact our reasons for being in that place and sometimes our relations our social relations to that place you know for instance one being employed to be there the artist and the other not being employed to be there the the member of the public are very very different but they be, those things also become invisible when you're doing praxis together when you're doing something with an audience uh, which is which is uh, which is practical rather than um, I don't know, uh, theoretical or aesthetic or something like that. So there's something, I mean, it seems like there's something in all those activities that is around, um, like whether it be the artist doing the sort of group cooking like you suggest, or um, like the shopper <clears throat> at the farmer's market or the volunteer, uh, a community project or the food bank, um, a charity setting. Um, that there's something there about seeking reconnection or I mean I suppose I'm sort of because you use the word around compensation which is easy I think to hear as a negative oh you know so this is someone who's knowing but is there also potentially something in there around a general uh, a genuine like seeking to connect with something more manual okay so here's here's where i'm gonna say no right and i'm gonna give a different example now just to kind of illustrate the kinds of problems that i'm looking into and thinking about all the time so if we think about travel Okay, and the difference between working class travel and middle class travel. All right, so there's this, there's this amazing book uh, by Michael John Law called A World Away. And it's, it's about the, the invention of the package holiday. And basically the invention of what we would now kind of pejoratively call tourism as opposed to genuine travel. You know, uh, genuine travel. The um, there's a, there's another really interesting book by Emily Thomas called The Meaning of Travel. Uh, I, I'm I'm interested in travel because of my interest in the history of photography because photographers travel, and quite often what we what we want from the photograph is that the photographer has genuinely gone somewhere, 
and had a genuine encounter with something that is remote to us and they photograph it and then we get to in a sense experience something of that real travel not just a tourist experience but real travel through the photograph and so i'm really interested in different theories of travel and one of the things that is um that comes through every study of uh of travel uh, you know like so emily thomas has looked at when she talks about the meaning of travel she's looked at the way that philosophers have written about travel and the way that Michael John Law talks about travel is he's, he's actually looked at the, way, at the industry itself, the tourist industry. And, and the difference between when, so, so, you, you, so you have uh, middle class people initially going on foreign holidays and working class people don't go on foreign holidays. So going to a foreign place is genuine, is a genuine experience of another culture. All right. And then when working class people start to do the same thing, then you're going to have to do something extra to have a genuine experience of a foreign culture that's not the same as a working class experience of going to a foreign place. And so you have to go effectively. This goes back to the hands idea. Effectively, you're going to have to organize this yourself. In other words, you're going to have to have a hands-on relationship to your own holiday, whereas the working class will go on holidays that are packaged for them by a company. And so you, you, you're going to have to, you know, so, so it becomes like more about sort of wandering around a foreign country and trying to go somewhere that you would not have planned to go to, you know. Um, and that's genuine travel, and 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 the way that um, the way that Emily Thomas talks about genuine travel as opposed to tourism, is is the the there's there's increased levels of alterity, there's increased levels of otherness. The more otherness you get into your um, into your journey, the more genuine this is, and and therefore the more authentic your experience has been. Whereas the, the idea of working class foreign travel is that you go to Spain and you have fish and chips and then you go to a, a British or an Irish pub. And so you try. So the idea, the, the negative picture of working class travel is that you're going somewhere else, but you're getting exactly the same as what you would have had if you'd have stayed. There's zero alterity, zero otherness. So this is not genuine travel. And what you what you what you what you then uh, see in 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 the uh, as a pattern is is this um, um, designation of a certain class to a certain kind of activity. So the, what's really interesting that comes out of uh, Michael John Law's book on a world away is when. When package holidays first started, they were described as being very working class kinds of holidays. But actually, subsequently, when historians have looked at the data, most of the people that went on them were middle class. But they were assigned a kind of working class characteristic because they were 
uh, packaged because they were commercial uh, and because a minority of the middle class would had already rejected that and had then started to have these more genuine more authentic experiences of foreign places of more out of the way places so so one of the way of doing that is to go to other other countries countries that uh, had not been traditional holiday destinations for the British for instance and another way of doing it is to go to more remote places within um, uh, countries that people had traditionally gone to and another way of doing it is to um, is to organize it yourself and to do your research before you go and all of that kind of thing so so it's like you it becomes a kind of craft you are crafting your own holiday whereas the the um, the package holiday is industrialized and so Pat and so you, you kind of have in a sense this kind of a sort of William Morris ethic of the holiday which dis which even if you're so so in a sense even if you're middle class you can end up having a working class experience and and but what because you've gone on this industrial holiday or industrialized holiday and so you get this kind of crafting of a holiday which makes you oddly middle class so historically you would say that craft is a working class activity but when you craft your own life that's a middle class activity and the crafting then becomes the, and this is what I think makes it this is why I think you were right to say that the hand becomes fetishized because crafting becomes fetishized insofar as it um, it becomes a within within a, you know so long as craft isn't what you do for a living then crafting becomes very middle class. Whereas when, when you craft for a living, then it's not middle class. So you get these, so another thing that I'm really interested in is food and cooking and things like that. So that, what that means is that you could do exactly the same thing as somebody else. And when you do it as a middle class person, that's crafting. And when somebody else does it, it's just work. So, uh, you know, the, you can you can fetishize the degree to which when you cook dinner, you're crafting your life and you're expressing yourself and you're objectifying yourself and you're and you're 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 being fulfilled and so on and so forth. And you're doing the right thing and all of these things. But when somebody else does exactly the same activity, they're showing just how much they are. Um, they're not living their own life they're alienated from their own life because they're cooking something for somebody else um, and and so all of the um, all of these kind of um, patterns of differentiation are expressed in the various ways in which we pat ourselves on the back or we sneer at other people through doing in some cases exactly the same thing just going back to the tourism uh, um point um i mean it seems to me that this is where tourism well a, a, an aspect of where tourism is connected to colonial activity and this uh, sort of rem and the romanticizing of the explorer it it also seems to me that 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 behavior 
um, has equally, or if not more, impactful um, Im impact upon the the place, the the touristic destination, and the people and culture that that is becoming that tourist destination. So one of the um, I think you're right that especially historically. So in um, in Emily Thomas's book, there's 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 a really interesting relationship between the kind of um, the philosophical idea of travel and colonialism and settlement and and so on. Uh, but what what uh, one of the really interesting developments is that in the late 20th century and in the 21st century certain colonialist patterns become the solution to the problem of tourism so so for instance the idea of um working for a charity for a year or, or so becomes associated with like genuine travel because you have you know, you go and maybe work alongside people from another culture, people in, in, in many cases, people of a different race, um, and you spend real time with them. Um, and so that, so that colonial relationship then feels to, or at least it's written about as being more genuine, more authentic, more real than, um, than, uh, than Brits going to Spain and getting a suntan, you know, and 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 so it's there's been a kind of um, maybe there's been a kind of blindness towards how much that um, reintroduces the colonial relationship into our desire for an authentic experience of the other uh, that the that your that the desire for otherness uh, that Emily Thomas talks about then then becomes you know more and more intensified so that the only way you can really get it is to is to actually go and live in another uh, community um, um, and in a, and in some cases that that then becomes less about um, less about holidaying and, and perhaps it becomes work. So, you know, the the only way to, to, to really seriously experience the other is to get a job working in another country. And so you're paid to go and work with people who are other, and that becomes even more genuine, even more authentic than somebody just taking a year out. So, yeah, the, so it's... You would think, I don't know, what well, I would think anyway, that this whole experience of colonialism would have would have made um, those would have made us very conscious and very alert and and very concerned about those relationships. But actually, in in studies by sociologists of people going on gap year breaks to work for charities and so forth shows that actually there's 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 very little trace of that perception of that being a concern 
but more of like that this was uh, um, this was an experience that improved me that made me better that made me more authentic that made me understand the world better mm. Mm. um so connecting that to objects and um the tourism memento but also uh, expanding upon that into lifestyle mementos um and um adoption of life's of a i suppose what i'm trying to say is like turning potentially turning what is perceived as somebody of an other lifestyle or a fetishized lifestyle it becoming a product that can be purchased and put on yeah, and that feels like an extension to this tourism conversation. Yeah, it absolutely is. Um, and I, I've written about this, um, and it, it's it's very, um, I don't know. There's 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 lots of ways that it that that it feels very intricate to me. The way that things have been transpose the way that things are substituted for each other so so for instance you you in the 18th century there arises this idea that uh, philosophically a human being becomes authentic when they make a world that represents their subjectivity out of them so so you so you know like building your Build, making things, you know, uh, making things is an expression of who you are. And then when you recognize yourself in the world, then you're at home in it. It's a world that you've made and you've made it in your own image, according to your subjectivity and so on and so forth. And that's the theory. But actually, when it's applied to especially middle class urban life at the end of the 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, it takes on a slightly different form, which is you express yourself, you become more authentic when you buy things that express your taste. So this is where the, that, that whole kind of concept of taste comes from. And, and, and taste becomes this way of seeing yourself in a world and having the world reflect back to you and therefore of, in, in a sense of, um, of you of your of the inner world becoming an outer world and the outer world becoming an inner world of these things being completely sort of at one with each other but now through purchase not through making and 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 what, and what you get then in the early 19th century is this is this sense and especially with the rise of industrialization where you the person who buys the products expresses themselves and is authentic through that purchase but the people that made it are not expressing themselves they don't become authentic by making the things that middle class people want to buy and then this is extended and transposed into this idea that um the um the indigenous make 
let's 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 put it in the most negative way we can make tourist trinkets that allow the tourist to feel authentic but where the indigenous producer is uh, is producing things for money so is therefore not having that authentic experience in either in the production of the things or in the sale of the things that there's that there's a kind of there's a double alienation there because you're you're alienated from the product because the product's now being taken away from you but you're also alienated from yourself because you're producing things for the market for the tourist market so yeah exactly what you were saying i was just thinking and the another layer to that is that um many tourist trinkets for want of a better term that are mass produced may very well be mass produced elsewhere in an other place entirely to the tour the, the place that they are representing and that um so that's that other layer of disassociation and and then there's a hierarchy of of tourist trinket um the crafted um artisan slice of um a, the, of the tourist memento market if you like yeah and so we we then have in a sense uh, the the split between tourism and travel is then in a sense marked on the objects themselves because you have these tourist objects and then the genuine article you know which is which is handmade by local people and and so and so you get this kind of class split in objects which which follows the contours of this um intellectual distinction between tourism and travel and the um the the ideal situation is that you fill your house with genuine handmade locally produced locally sourced traditional objects that have that otherness in them you know so so it's still about that alterity. It's still about making contact with otherness and somehow um, uh, capturing the otherness, taking the otherness with you. Of of, but all always I think of of a kind of self making through the encounter with otherness. So the otherness is always an otherness for you it's not an otherness for the other because then you'd leave the stuff there you have to take it with you because the otherness is for you uh, and it's part of your narrative and your um, crafting of yourself and you craft yourself through the encounter with otherness so can we think now or perhaps um, hear you talk a bit about the um that otherness from the other's perspective um, and that relationship with yeah the the objects the totems of that otherness um, and uh, yeah 
Well, in, in a ver there's a very straightforward, slightly sceptical, cynical way of thinking about this. Uh, but um, I want to link that to a sort of critique of the romance of the otherness. So um, the romance of the otherness says you, the other should only make things that are traditional and indigenous and um, local uh, and so on, and, and so on. The, the tradition should determine your activity, not the market. You know, as soon as you start making market things, then this isn't what the romance of the other wants. Um, that's from the pers the romance is from the perspective of the visitor. Um, so if you if you dismantle the romance, then then the the person producing the artisan goods or the tourist goods um, is doing that for money. And the problem is you can't simply express that without devaluing the object and the whole point of it is to produce value so you so there's a sense in which you have to sort of go along with the romance to a certain point in order to sell to the people who are subscribing to that romance but ultimately if you want to be cynical about this or skeptical about this you can say that the um there is no um there is no romance for the producer um, that that the producer knows full well what they're doing when they're making these things in in this kind of um, commercial way and and the, the you know and the difference between the mass market and the artisan market is is not just that one is inauthentic and the other is authentic but that one is low cost a low low value and the other is high value uh, the artisan has, has got more value and one of the ways that the artisan gets more value is that it is closed in romance not just that it's handmade the handmade aspect is part of the romance and it, it means it takes more time and it's more expensive to produce because it's made out of, it's not made of plastic or something you know but it's also about um, marking the object with that romance um, so um, the from the perspective of the producer the romance you, you have a kind of um, conflict conflicted relationship to the romance because the romance is not your romance but the romance is part of the value and therefore is is in your discourse around the object and might be even in you might need to mark your space and mark your body with this romance as well you know so so there's um, there's this whole kind of um, apparatus of being ourselves for others that you have to signify your selfness to your to others and signify your otherness of, to them to them and to yourself and you know and so you end up with this kind of um, living a kind of romance um, or marking your territory with that romance um, and that's 
It's part of the marketing. And that surely is in itself distancing and um, uh, creates the opportunity or the situation for a disconnect of um, place, self, um, identity. Yeah, so there's, there's a really famous example of this. So um, the very first, apparently, I, you know, th this is what I've read. The very first documentary movie of, uh, of an indigenous person is uh, Nanook of the North, which was made in 1922 by uh, Robert Flaherty. And Nanook of the North is a film about Nanook and Nanook was not called Nanook. The name is given to the, uh, to him because it feels more authentic. It feels like a proper um, indigenous name, whereas his actual name didn't feel indigenous enough. And Nanook of the North is, is a film about um, whale hunting and the filmmaker wanted him to hunt with a spear even though by this time by the time that it's made in the 1920s they hunted with guns it's like that doesn't make the movie that i'm after so we're going to get you to hunt with a spear for the benefit of the film so it's like you know so th there are all these issues around documentary generally and this is just like one example of it but this is like this is how the an image of the indigenous is projected onto the indigenous and you know there's there are it's it's not just an idea there are real objective forces which are then in a sense put onto the indigenous to be indigenous to be really indigenous you know and uh, and there's this there's this trope that comes out over and over again in in contemporary uh, writing on working class culture, for instance, where as soon as you, uh, I don't know, go to college or become successful in a particular field or, you know, you're, you're good at something, music, sport, something like that. When middle class people encounter you, the first thing that they say, and they say, it, it just like it's a pattern, it, it's like a tick that they can't help saying is you don't seem working class and and so you know you're you're you 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 speak too articulately to be working class i wouldn't have guessed that you're working class you know uh, you don't dress working class and all of this kind of thing because they have this idea of what the working class should look like should speak like should act like and and so there's this there's this um there's this parallel I think with like it's not enough just to be indigenous it's not enough just to be working class you have to look and act and talk and seem like that which means you have to conform to a predetermined image and the image more than likely will have been produced decades or longer ago and so there's, there's, there becomes a kind of temporal element to this. And so the romance of the indigenous and the romance of the working class and the romance of the handmaid is always presented as a kind of nostalgia 
because the image that we have of it was always produced uh, a generation or two ago. Thinking about class and place and yeah very much that romanticism around and what I've called before the fetish around class it's boundaried and it needs to stay within that boundary and there can't be these um, sort of tendrils or shifts or movements. Yeah that, there's this really uh, odd moment and you know Richard Hoggart who wrote uh, the, the Uses of Literacy Sorry, it's like one of the the, the, the books that, that that helped to found what we now think of as cultural studies. And Richard Hoggart, who was himself working class and went to university and then became one of the first people to study the working class as a, as a living culture uh, within within his research. And so he's like really important in, in, in terms of that that um, that. Uh, resistance to to the, to the idea of of, of of like what should be studied in in university, what counts as um, as proper culture and so forth. But even he said that during his lifetime, the working class have gone from being you know people in in rags in slums, um, you know, uh, with nothing. You know who, were, and he he says that when he when he was growing up, there would you know he he experienced um, days with without food or with you know with ju just eating uh, a slice of bread or something like that. So hunger is is part of his conception of the working class because that's what it was when he was young. And then he says, you know, uh, there can't be a working class anymore because the working class have got radios and televisions and and they 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 have nice clothes you know um and and they have steady employment uh and and so and, and it's like as soon as the working class changes its its form it changes its its look um and and you know and changes you know as soon as the working class itself has organized itself to a point where it's forced its employees, its employers to give it higher wages and therefore to have better clothes and better houses and more food, then it's no longer working class. That to me is, is, is a really bogus argument because the working class has improved its conditions and that does not mean it's no longer working class. It just doesn't look like our image of the working class that we have from the 19th century and from the first 30 years of the 20th century and the same thing happens with modern uh, rural lifestyles and things like that. There's, um, there's something that's coming into my mind here that, uh, that I can't um, articulate better than saying what making friends with an experience of um, being in a place, going to an other, and yeah, putting it on and making friends with it or, and its representatives. Yet still there are, the, there are very clear lines and, and boundaries. And again, 
um, how I'm interested in how it, it from your research and what you speak of how those other hold on to identity or space what other I don't know mechanisms of that or behaviors of that or I haven't got the right words for for it but if you know what I mean and I don't think I've got the right words for it either and I don't <laughs> think that I don't think I've got a solution for this because I think what what we're what we're experiencing in this period of history is um, is a right-wing ascendancy uh, a middle-class ascendancy a white ascendancy um, um, where the struggles of um, I don't know of of people who don't uh, live that that kind of um, hegemonic life their struggles have been marginalized and um, you know we, we 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 hear a lot from the right about how woke our culture is because you know we're interested in diversity and so on and so forth um, and diversity has become a kind of ethical um, necessity it's demanded of us um, but um, but at the same time uh, this 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 is this is a perception okay this is a subjective perception it feels to me as if the diversity the diversity is being imposed on the metropolitan center as something that makes them ethical by by acknowledging diversity all right so in that sense you can't be an indigenous rural person with diversity you're the object of somebody else's diversity you're not diverse yourself you are specific particular individual you are of a particular place of a particular tradition you're not being asked to become diverse you're asked to remain identical with images of you um, and and the same actually is the case for you know a working-class person um, who accepts diversity then in the literature and I've, I've, I've read this on more than one occasion within the literature as soon as the working-class person acknowledges the, the, the importance of diversity they become middle-class so that, so you lose your identity through through this acknowledgement of, of uh, diversity and some people in order, in order for that diversity to work some people have to remain identical with themselves to not um, to not benefit from the ethics of diversity and this is this is uh, Alain Badiou's uh, theory of ethics so he says what ethics demands is an other and the and there 
and, and the other comes in two forms. The other to save and the other to kill. So, and you, you basically do both at the same time. And, and he was saying that what you have to do to be ethical is to identify the evil and identify who you're saving by killing that evil and then kill them. So, so you need an other in order to remain ethical. And you need that other not to save itself, but for you to save it. Uh, and so that, that's what I'm basing this on, really, is that that kind of idea of ethics. And I think that there's there's a version of you, we could we can apply that, I think, to this idea of of um, identity and diversity and who gets to be ethically diverse. Um. Can you, this is pushing a bit the bounds of, of the themes of our conversation, but it really, I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts in connection to this with um, the term social mobility. Okay, so this is, social mobility is particularly related, for, in, in, in my reading of the literature anyway, on class and and part of the idea of this really is about denying class so if you have social mobility and if social mobility is possible is potential then people are not in a class uh, as a matter of um, the structure of society they're in a class because they've chosen to be in that class in other words if if you if you can say that working class people can work their way out of poverty or uh, educate themselves out of out of poverty and so on so if you say that every single working class person is capable of becoming middle class then anyone who's left behind as working class is there uh, of their own volition it's their own fault they just didn't work hard enough they didn't try hard enough they didn't succeed uh, and if they tried a little harder, then they could have become middle class. And the idea in the, the, the neoliberal idea, but also the idea in America of the, the underclass, is really the idea that it's entirely their own fault and nobody else is to blame for this. And therefore, they have no right for society to help them out in any way whatsoever. In fact, the more we help them, the less likely they are to try themselves to become middle class. Can I uh, bring that back around, social mobility and the tourism conversation and um, behaviours of colonialism and this boundaries or positioning of otherness, fetish, um, and who stays in what place? Um, as a to 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 conclude our conversation. Well, th this means as well as talking about social mobility, we need to talk about mobility itself. And there's, in terms of the, the 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 philosophy of travel, travel is a positive thing. Travel is something that, that 
helps you develop as a as a human being. It's educative, it's um, it's enriching. Uh, travel travel um, travel is is a form of knowledge. Um, travel is a is a is a form of experience that that is um, that 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 allows us, like I said before, to craft who we are. And obviously, in order for this to work, some people have to stay where they are because we're traveling to experience that otherness. If they travel to us while we travel to them, then that otherness wouldn't be there. And also, the, the otherness of travel, clearly, if you look at the, the literature, doesn't work when people from other places come to the Metropolitan Centre. That doesn't count. Their otherness, we don't experience their otherness, they experience our otherness. So we don't get the benefit from that. So they have to stay still and we have to travel to them in order for this romance of travel to be realised. And, and therefore, we have to have this um, economy of mobility. Some people are very mobile and travel a lot and experience a lot, you know. Think, think, about, think about curators versus artists, for instance, you know, or, or even artists versus publics, you know. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a differential schema going on where the, the higher you are, the more travel you have, and the lower you are, the less travel you have, and the people with the least amount of travel are um, communities who artists visit or curators visit, um, and them they the whole point of a community <laughs> is that they stay still; they're in a place, um, and so so there's this. Um, there's this value attached to travel and mobility, which, um, which, it's it's a kind of surplus value, because it's based on other people being stationary, and they're being fixed in a place is a necessary precondition for anybody else to benefit from travelling. Um, so it's it's. Um, structural that so neatly brings us back around to the, the the photograph and the travel photographer um thank you Miraz Dave and um it's been lovely speaking to you really generous thank you lovely speaking to you thanks for asking me to do this Miraz, Agas Gosloas, thank you for listening. Further episodes of the Mescla Bruyon Druis podcast can be found on my website, sovayberryman.co.uk. That's S O V A Y B E R R I M A N. .co.uk, where you'll also find guest biographies and a resource page of links to further reading on the topics discussed. If you feel inspired to join the Mescla conversation about contemporary Cornish cultural identity, 
please get in touch with me, Save Berryman, via my website or social media. You'll find Mescalabriandruis on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. The Mescalabriandruis podcast and project has been made possible due to a wealth of in-kind help and support from many parties, including the Wenda Perrin Festival, Gorseth Kernow, Cornwall Council's Cornish Language Office, Coethys and Yeath Canuick, Crescent Kernow, Cornwall Neighbourhoods for Change and Falmouth University Falmouth Campus. The project has been supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England and further funding has been gratefully received from Historic England by Redreath Unlimited. Agas Terman, Agas Gwellas. Thank you for your time. See you later.